Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and welcome to episode 101 of ADHD for Smartass Women. This 101st episode is brought to you by AOK Every Day, my new unplanner system for planning success. This is like no planning system that you've ever seen. It was designed by me, for me, and you, and our brilliant creative ADHD brains. You know, AOK Every Day is only for you if, like me, you struggle to use planners. And this is a beta, which means I will want your feedback, and I am only printing 100 planners. This is our first printing. It will also include three live planning sessions with me, where I will teach you how to plan, prioritize, and remember what you want to get done. My system, it helps to reduce overwhelm and increases productivity. If you want to join us, you can find out more information at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash unplanner. I also talk all about AOK every day and my decades-long struggle with planners and schedules in episode 98 of this podcast. So, Let's get started with episode 101. You know, for my 100th podcast episode, which was last week, I decided that what I was going to do was go through the 99 previous episodes that I've recorded and choose the things that I learned from making this podcast that have had the most impact on me. Now, that was a great thought, but when I actually started to dig in, it was really overwhelming. There was a lot of content to go through. I mean, basically two years of research and two years of my work, right? Actually, I keep saying two years, and it's not quite two years. It was 100 episodes worth, so 100 weeks worth, or 99 weeks, right? So anyway, what I decided to do was two things. I decided to come back to myself more and really think about the way I think about ADHD today as compared to 99 episodes ago. And so what I did is I asked myself, what were the key phrases that I learned along the way that really resonated with me? And they were those nuggets that either stayed with me or maybe they didn't stay with me. I'd actually forgotten them, 
But now, after going through all my notes from 99 episodes, these were really the things that I needed to re-remember, right? Because they really formed my personal understanding of what ADHD looks like for me. Number two, the second thing I decided to do was to break down this episode, so my 100th episode, into two podcasts because it was far too long. So you got part one last week, and now this week I'm coming back with part two, which I'm calling episode 101. And as I promised last week, we are going to start with ADHD and RSD, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, so extreme emotion, which is so fitting since emotion isn't even mentioned in the DSM-5, but it is, I would say, the one symptom that a lot of our women can really relate to. And once they understand that emotion is part of ADHD, it just reduces a lot of the shame and makes them feel so better about who they are. Anyway, like many of you, I had no idea that low frustration tolerance, excitability, a temper were even part of ADHD. I mean, I knew that when I was really stressed, I could get really curt and I could really get snippy. But honestly, I just thought, oh, it's probably just a personality defect because of these perfectionistic tendencies that I tended to have, right? And between you and me, I also hit it pretty well. I mean, I didn't really show it to other people or I tried not to, but with my family, as I said, I could be very curt and very snippy and it would show up around things that I really cared about. So if we were going to have, you know, a house full of people, you know, right before 20 guests would show up, I would just get really stressed out because typically I would be doing all the cooking, you know, most of the decorating, most of everything. I mean, I had, you know, my family's great. They would help, but they were always coming to me. Okay, what do we need to do now? And I remember this too in my high-end women's wear company where I would literally say, can someone here take some responsibility so it's not all on me? So these were around things where it was really important to me that it work out a certain way because I almost felt like some of my identity was around, you know, in these areas. I mean, these were things that I really had a lot of interest in. And the other thing that I was just thinking about is what I noticed too is I couldn't focus on anything personal if something in business wasn't going right. And I mean, specifically, one of my clients was upset with me. So when my kids were growing up, when they were younger, I spent 15 years as a real estate broker. And I did a lot of high-end real estate. And, you know, the deal with real estate is most of the time you are working with people where this is their number one asset. You know, you are helping them either buy or sell their number one asset. And so you can get a lot of bad behavior from them as well, not just individually, but also as a couple. And those sorts of interactions would be really upsetting to me if I ever felt like one of my clients was upset or was disappointed in me. And I just thought it was normal that I would literally leave dinners to resolve problems, you know, on their behalf. And I couldn't focus, like I couldn't be at a dinner, like at a restaurant, you know, with friends at a dinner, if I knew that my client was so upset and there was something that I needed to resolve that I couldn't resolve. And this one time, 
I was at a dinner with a good friend of mine. It was her birthday and I was taking her out for dinner. And I must have let, and she was, it was just her and me. And after I came back the second time, my friend looked at me and she said, are you going to leave a third time or something along those lines? And now she was in real estate too. So she understood, you know, what clients can be like. And I remember looking at her and saying, isn't this normal? And she's like, no, this is not normal at all. And I was just so shocked that she could have a client that was upset and she could just go on with life and not have to resolve and deal with the issue right then and there. And you can imagine if you're doing social things, you're doing things with your family, and you're constantly having clients get in the middle of that, it could probably get pretty irritating, right? And it was odd because I was actually pretty nonplussed by most everything else. And so I always wondered, how could that be? Like, why did these sorts of things impact me so much where I would worry so much about them? I would be very excitable around them. I could, you know, my temper could flare up around them, not with the client, but with anybody who wouldn't allow me to fix whatever it was that I thought needed to be fixed right then and there. So I've kind of gone a little bit off on a tangent there, but I I wanted to explain why it was so important for me to discover that emotion is a huge part of ADHD because it made me understand why I was the way I was and why I could look at friends who may be in the exact same position and didn't seem to be bothered at all. So let's start with episode 19, (laughs) which is all about ADHD and rejection sensitivity. And I'm going to weave episode 49 into that as well, because 49 was about RSD as well. But it was more along the lines of, okay, so what can you do about it? And the interesting thing about episode 19 and episode 49 is these are both episodes that are in the top three of our most downloaded episodes of all time. So clearly, even though emotion is not in the DSM, it is something that at least our women, ADHD smartass women, really struggle with. So this is the first key thought. Every ADHD expert believes that emotion is part of ADHD. And it's not that we experience more emotion than your typical person. It's that we feel more emotion. Many of us can relate to what it feels like to ruminate. We have these overactive brains. And then on top of that, we feel more emotion. We also may have this natural negativity bias because remember, bad is stickier than good. You've heard me talk about how it takes five good things to counterbalance the one bad thing. But this is much more than rumination. This is rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD. And my research indicates that it seems to only coexist with ADHD. I see it especially among women that are inattentive. So they're naturally even more in their head and they have a history of trauma. But according to the medical experts, trauma does not cause RSD. So RSD, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, it's the debilitating fear of rejection. William Dotson, he is the ADHD expert who has done most of the research on this. And he believes that with RSD, the person experiences extreme emotional sensitivity and pain 
triggered by the perception. And this perception can be real or imagined, right? Of being rejected, of being teased, of being criticized, a disappointment to important people in their lives, a disappointment to themselves when they fail to attain their very own high standards or goals. According to Dawson, a third of those with ADHD, and this includes kids, list RSD as the most impairing aspect of their ADHD. As I mentioned, I see this in our group of ADHD women a lot. You know, you can have these brilliant, accomplished women who were great in school, who are model employees, but at any moment they can spiral down because they misinterpret something as a harsh rebuke when it really, it wasn't. So what is it that happens to them? Well, if you suffer from RSD, Lots of times these women are people pleasers. They're often highly intuitive, so they know exactly what they should say and who they should be to obtain someone's praise and admiration. But with RSD, they can have such a fear of failure that they abandon their goals or even lose track of their goals. They can stop trying anything new unless they're assured of success. It can cause an obsession with perfectionism, yet understand the deal with perfectionism is everything you do, no matter what you do, it never seems good enough. In episode 19, I also talk about medication that works for those with RSD. But the problem is it's only effective a third of the time. And you know, I had so much interest in episode 19. And I felt like I had basically ended the episode with, hey, if you're not one of the 30% of those with ADHD who get relief from RSD medication, good luck. And that's never how I want to leave a podcast listener. So once I was done with episode 19, I started thinking about, okay, I need to create a new episode about RSD. And it took a while to get there. But in episode 49, I did that. So I talked all about RSD, but I did more research and discovered that there's actually a lot that you can do to reduce and even eliminate symptoms of RSD. I also created a worksheet for episode 49 that goes with this episode that helps you put together your own RSD toolkit. And you can find it on my podcast page at tracyoutsuga.com forward slash podcast. Um, you can also find it on Apple Podcasts under the specific episode, and I will have it in the show notes of this episode. So what I have discovered is that the best thing that these women can do is to learn about RSD. So many women have sent messages telling me that learning about RSD literally changed their lives. Once they knew what it was, then they could deal with it and they could start building some workarounds. You know, I constantly hear that learning about RSD makes it so much better because what these women would say is, you know, I know now I'm not crazy. Since it's real and you then know what it is, you start to recalibrate because you can see that it's the RSD that's distorting your reality. And of course, this gives you hope. This gives you energy. You start to realize that there's something that you can do to make it better and even stop it. So basically, it puts you back in the driver's seat. It puts you back in control and it leaves you where you're no longer at the mercy of your emotions. You know, and I'm thinking especially of, um, I did an episode 85 with entrepreneur Helena Hills. And, you know, she commented that she always knew she had ADHD, but she just kind of, you know, she was young when she was diagnosed and she just sort of forgot about it, right? And just thought, oh, it's just part of my personality. But after the birth of her child, what happened is her RSD went through the roof, which kind of makes sense just because I think everything for us women is somehow connected to hormones, right? 
And she didn't know that RSD was part of her ADHD because she had not experienced it to that level in the past. The other workarounds that you can do is you can look for the gold stars and the positive emotion. You know, understanding that we're creatives who need to be doing something creative regularly to feel good, you can address this by building a support team and making sure that you're in the right environment. If you struggle with emotion, these two episodes are really important. And as I said, they are two of our most popular episodes. So many women that struggle with RSD are actually first diagnosed with bipolar disorder because the ADHD piece is completely missed. And so many doctors don't know that emotion is part of ADHD because, again, it's not mentioned in the DSM. And if you want to know why it's not mentioned, go back to episode 19. It's all about politics. I'll explain it to you there. Okay, so the next episode I want to talk about is episode 25, and it's called ADHD and Addiction. And I learned so much researching this episode. Those of us with ADHD, by the way, have anywhere from a five to 10 times higher likelihood of substance abuse and addiction. It's brain chemistry, and it's also something called reward deficiency syndrome. Key thought, ADHD and reward deficiency syndrome, I'm going to call it RDS, don't mix it up with RSD. ADHD and RDS causes a malfunction in the brain reward cascade. Specifically, we don't make enough dopamine, and that affects our reward pathways, which means that we may feel, number one, less motivation to work towards a reward. Number two, once we do reach our goal, we get to the reward, we feel less satisfaction from this reward than someone without reward deficiency syndrome. Number three, this is exactly why we never feel like we've accomplished enough. And this was huge for me to learn about this. I often talk about uh, post-final depression. And I remember in college, everybody would be so excited on those last days, you know, of finals. And I would be excited about it too. And then I'd take my last exam. I'd be done. Everybody was partying. Everybody wanted to go have fun. And I actually felt kind of depressed. I realize now I felt depressed because I expected to feel more excited about the fact that I had studied really hard, worked really hard, taken these exams, done well on them, and I wanted to feel more excited about it. So because I didn't feel as excited about it, it was like, well, what am I celebrating? Which is one of our problems, isn't it? We don't celebrate our successes. So anyway, RDS can lead to addiction because we are driven to keep seeking the reward that we expected. So we just keep going back over and over again, right? That first glass of wine was supposed to make us feel relaxed and peaceful, but it doesn't. So then we go to the second glass of wine and then that doesn't do it. Maybe the third will and so on and so on. When you have ADHD, you often don't get the same satisfaction that others get from many things like accomplishments, reaching goals, work, food, shopping, a drink. We're also driven to seek substances or behaviors to get the dopamine that's missing in the reward pathway. Key thought, it's biology. So the same dopamine circuitry that leads to ADHD can also lead to addiction. 
I think that whatever drives ideation, imagination, creativity, curiosity is probably also part of that same dopamine circuitry as well. This is why we also see this overlap between creativity, talent, depression, addiction, and ADHD. They all kind of hang together. And there's this myth that you can't have talent and creativity without depression and addiction. That's not true. Another myth that we see a lot is giving stimulant medication to someone with substance use disorders or a predisposition to addictions, for example, someone with ADHD, is going to cause more addiction or start them down that path. That's what most of the general public thinks. And the truth is that, key thought, studies show that taking stimulant medication reduces your risks of developing an addiction by half. Okay, I'm going to move on to episode 29. Episode 29 was with psychotherapist Perry Jansen. It was called, Perry Jansen Talks About ADHD, Emotion, and the Importance of Learning How to Manage Your Feelings. So we have genetics, but then we also have environment that plays an additional role. And we're learning a lot about that. Key thought here, what your ADHD symptoms look like can also depend on how you grew up. Did you struggle in school? Did you experience trauma? And what I've noticed firsthand is that the women that struggle the most have ADHD and unresolved trauma. And you can't work on the ADHD until you've actually addressed the trauma. You know, when I first started this podcast, I'm not sure that I even believed that therapy worked because I knew so many people who had been in therapy most of their adult life and nothing seemed to get better. I also noticed that the first line of defense whenever a woman isn't feeling well is to diagnose them with anxiety and or depression and prescribe medication. There are so many women who follow this path for decades until someone finally says, usually the woman herself, hey, could this be ADHD? So what Perry does is she combines therapy, action, and creativity. And she taught me something so important about feelings. And this is the key thought. Perry taught me that emotions aren't good or bad. They're not right or wrong. They're just information. And so because of that, we need to stop running away from these feelings We need to stop glossing over them with toxic positivity. We need to stop medicating them. We need to step into those not-so-good feelings and be willing to feel them because they're trying to tell us something about our life. What is not working? Is it our relationships? Is it our careers? Do we need more creativity in our life? Are we not living to our potential? Does our life need more meaning? So I think that, you know, and I'm not saying stop medication, certainly not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is consider that there may be issues that need to be resolved that medication alone cannot fix. And it may be something as simple as our body, if we pay attention to it and listen to it, listen to those feelings that are not right or wrong and not good or bad, they're just information that maybe we need to make some changes in our life. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to episode 30, my favorite tech tool, how the Apple Watch saved my ADHD brain. And I did touch on this last week, but 
The Apple Watch is still my favorite tech tool. I use it every single day. My battery, well, I think my watch is about two years old now and the battery is slowing down. So I think I'm going to have to upgrade. I offload all my reminders with alarms. I use my phone to add anything I want to remember onto the Bear app, which is literally right on my watch face. It is quick and it is easy. It allows me to get in and out without going through a bunch of steps. So I actually use it. My Apple Watch notifies me of my next appointments. It is the single best tool that I use to shore up my poor working memory. And I wanted to mention it because I wanted to let you know that there's a landing page that goes with this episode that has pictures and links. So if you were to buy your own Apple Watch, you can set it up the way I've set mine up. And that is tracyoutsuka.com forward slash Apple hyphen watch. And I'll make sure to have that in our show notes as well. Okay, episode number 34, titled ADHD and Repetitive Body-Focused Behaviors, also known as skin picking, nail biting, teeth grinding, etc. And I have to mention this episode because I can't even begin to tell you how many comments I got about it. Key thought, RBFBs, which is what I'm going to call, it's the acronym for Repetitive Body-Focused Behaviors, are linked to ADHD. Now, the most common RBFBs are trichotillomania, which is hair pulling, dermatillomania, which is skin picking. There's nail biting, which I can't pronounce it or I will pronounce it wrong. There's skin biting. There's bruxism, which is teeth grinding. And then there's something called tongue biting. These are complex conditions that cause people to repeatedly touch their hair and body in ways that result in physical damage. They feel like bad habits, but guess what? They are technically not habits. RBFBs elevate dopamine levels in the brain because they're stimulating. So I think I need to make that a key thought. These behaviors reward us immediately. Doing any of these grooming behaviors occasionally is normal, but when they become excessive and negatively impact a person's life, they need professional treatment. And although most of us with RBFBs want to stop these behaviors, we literally can't. There's almost an addiction-like quality to them. Experts estimate that approximately 3 million people struggle with hair pulling and picking at their skin. This has been studied for a long time, but it was always thought to be part of the OCD family. There are only a few studies that have looked at these conditions in people with ADHD. Dr. Robert Olivardia believes that many patients who are diagnosed with OCD, he's an ADHD expert, by the way, actually have ADHD. He believes that ADHD predisposes us to developing these conditions. And guess what? I did a little poll in our group when I was creating this episode So this poll was of ADHD women, 77% of the women that responded reported that they struggled with RBFBs. Insane, isn't it? And there were so many comments from women saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea these things had to do with ADHD. And I always wondered, why did I do them? I was hurting myself. I was making myself, you know, ruining my skin biting my fingernails to the quick till they were bloody, but I couldn't stop. Well, now we know it's all connected to the brain and ADHD. Okay. So that brings me to episode 40, 
how to prepare for a meeting with your ADHD doctor. And I had to include this episode. For a lot of women, when we finally do all the research, we are absolutely convinced that what we've been wondering about for so long is actually ADHD. We don't know who to go to next. And so we do more research, right? We find a doctor, a specialist, hopefully, but usually it's not, to go and talk to about this. And we're just terrified that we're going to go and present our findings. We're going to meet with this doctor and they're going to totally say, nope, it's not that. And I think part of it is we're so used to being discounted, right, as women by medical professionals telling us, no, it's not this. I mean, I know for me, you know, I heard everything else. Nobody ever mentioned ADHD. And I know in our Facebook group, I have heard so many women saying that they knew it was ADHD, but their doctors would come back and say, no, it's not ADHD. It's anxiety or it's depression. You know, those two things that they always want to diagnose women with. So we're anxious. And you know what happens when we're anxious, right? Our working memory goes on the frets. We're asked questions and we can't remember anything, like simple questions. So what do you think are some of the symptoms of ADHD? And we're sitting there like, uh, you know? So that's exactly why I created this podcast episode and the worksheet, which has a checklist that goes along with it. I created it to assist you so in figuring out where you should even go, number one, and then it helps you to prepare for the meeting so you don't walk in there extra anxious and unable to advocate for yourself. So what I did is I literally walk you through the DSM-5 so you know exactly what the ADHD expert is looking for. And if you're not sitting in front of an ADHD expert, you come armed with information that can refute what that non-expert is saying when what they're saying doesn't make sense and is inaccurate. So again, remember, I'm not a doctor, but I know how your brain works because I share it. So my goal here is to just give you a simple framework or structure to recognize and then discuss your symptoms with your doctor. I know that once you have a structure, you can do this. So you can go back and listen to episode 40, and there is... A download called How to Prepare for a Meeting with Your Doctor, Adult Symptoms of ADHD Worksheet. They're on our show notes, and I'm also going to include them here on the show notes for episode 101. So that brings us to episode 53, which is called Neuroplasticity, Mindfulness, Meditation, and ADHD. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention how well meditation and mindfulness works for the ADHD brain. I mean, I got to tell you, I didn't believe in meditation, mindfulness, any of this stuff. You know, I just thought, oh, that just sounds like a bunch of woo-woo. Well, again, I was wrong. So key thought. Neuroplasticity, meditation, and mindfulness changes the structure and function of brain regions that support your executive functions, which is where our ADHD creates deficits, and that includes emotional regulation. So we are talking here about the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex. This is science. Rumination, RSD, this is a hyperactivity of the mind. What we're doing is developing a style of thinking where we're like hamster on a hamster wheel, running and running and running, but getting nowhere. So what do we do? We obsess about a past problem, a loss, any kind of setback, but we just keep thinking about it and never moving forward to action. And so guess what? If you're not acting, 
you're doing nothing. So nothing's going to change. Yet in our minds, we think the fact that we're thinking and thinking and thinking so hard on this means that we're actually moving it forward when in fact we're not. So guess what? Your problem remains unsolved. Say you end up feeling worse and worse about it. When you ruminate, you dwell repetitively on negative thoughts. Remember too, we also have problems with transitions, right? Stopping things and starting things. And because we have problems starting and stopping, guess what happens when we start ruminating? Yeah, we can't stop, right? As you ruminate, you deepen those grooves in your brain, which controls your fight or flight response, and you increase your levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Ruminating is also lonely because you're cutting yourself off from other people. You're dissecting conversations and attributing ill will to friends that were never intended that way at all. And the reason this is so serious is that this tendency to overthink, guess what? It's linked to overeating, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, insomnia, high blood pressure. I'm sure other things as well, bad things, right? So why do people ruminate? (laughs) And this is a huge key thought. When I heard this, I'm like, duh, but I just hadn't thought about it. Ruminating focuses the mind and it provides mental stimulation. So it's basically the brain's way of entertaining itself. But once we're aware that we're doing this, guess what? We can put in a pause and this is the beauty of meditation and mindfulness. Now hear me out. I know there's someone out there thinking, "Ugh, yeah, meditation, woo woo. Yeah, too woo woo. Well, you need to know, number one, that there are two kinds of meditation. The first kind is to be spiritual, right? The second is to become more mindful. So to be able to pause and wonder to yourself, is that thought even true? So you're observing what you're thinking instead of just running with it and thinking because you thought it, it must be true. So for our intensive purposes here, let's just put meditation aside, okay? And let's just focus on mindfulness. When your brain just runs off and starts its ruminating, you can actually train yourself to stop it. Now, I am definitely going to be showing my age here, although I did see the sitcom completely in reruns. But in the 70s, I think it was the 70s, there was a sitcom called Bob Newhart. And Bob Newhart was a psychiatrist. You know what? I'm going to find the link and I'm going to post the link in the show notes because it's hilarious. There is an episode where he's there with one of his patients and it's a young woman, and she just starts going off on everything that's wrong. And what should she do about this? And I can't remember what it was she was going off on. But he just looks at her and he goes, just stop it. And she's like, what? Well, what do you mean? And this is what happened. And he looks at her and he's like, just stop it. And she comes back again with another question about, you know, this whole thing that she's ruminating over. And he's like, a third time, just stop it. And, you know, there's all this canned laughter in there, too. But it's just such a perfect illustration of the fact that we can actually put a pause in there, become aware. Well, first, we have to become aware of what we're thinking, right? So I always think of myself as outside of my body looking down and saying, stop it, putting the pause in there and stopping that thought and asking myself, 
How am I feeling in my body right now? What am I noticing outside of myself? What senses can I redirect my thoughts to? What am I smelling? What am I hearing? What am I tasting? And over time, you can actually make this process second nature. You can make it a habit to get yourself off of that hamster wheel so you're no longer mindlessly going off half-cocked, you know, reinventing these things in your brain that aren't even true. Instead, you're replacing it with being mindful of where you are, what your thoughts are, what you're feeling now, what you'd like to feel instead, and what your actions could be to replace the mindlessness. Your brain, it should not be allowed to just go running off unsupervised. Key thought, you control your thoughts. You are the boss of you, not your brain, so stop it. I also just realized I want to throw in a little aside here. So if you are interested in meditation, but you're thinking, Ugh, it's so woo. You need to listen to episode 50 with ADHD life coach, former therapist, and former USC adjunct professor Diane Wingert about meditation. This is a must listen. I always thought I can't meditate. There's no way. I can't even sit still. How am I supposed to meditate? Episode 50 is brilliant. You've got to listen to it. Okay, so then let's go on to episode 62, which is called Cannabis and ADHD. So I had to talk about this because where I thought I was going to end up on cannabis and ADHD was not where I ended up. Understand I live in California. I have a 22-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son, and in their circles, cannabis, they call it weed, is almost as common as alcohol. And, you know, I tend to be an early adopter. I pride myself on being open-minded. I know the political history around why Nixon classified cannabis as a Schedule One drug alongside heroin and LSD. I also know that drug arrests are racially skewed. So one of the main arguments today to legalize cannabis is because people of color are the ones who are disproportionately arrested. And of course, I still wholeheartedly agree with this. But the politics around cannabis are one thing, right? Whether it's healthy to an adolescent ADHD brain is an entirely different thing. I have seen so much about the medicinal and health benefits of cannabis. Just open your Facebook, right? On top of that, I started seeing information about the fact that cannabis is good for the ADHD brain. Again, if it's on Facebook, it must be true, right? And in fact, there's a doctor in Southern California that treats adolescent ADHD patients with cannabis. So I just really wanted to do this research. And I'm going to tell you, there wasn't a whole lot of it. What I have discovered is that there's little, if any, research to support any of these claims. Yet, when you go onto the cannabis online forums, most of the comments talk about the medicinal and or therapeutic benefits of cannabis to the ADHD brain. So this is the key thought. There is no evidence, scientific evidence, that cannabis is helpful to the ADHD brain in the long term. And I should say to the adolescent ADHD brain in the long term. To the contrary, there is evidence that cannabis is especially harmful to the adolescent brain. Our kids are smart. 
And if we give them the science, because trust me, they're hearing all about cannabis and how healthy it is and how medicinal it is from their friends, I think we're going to be much more effective at getting them to stop or at least getting them to reduce their use of it. The science will freak them out. And finally, I want to say there really is a difference between using cannabis before 25 versus after 25 when your brain is, for the most part, fully developed. You just don't want to be exposing this stuff to a developing brain, and you absolutely don't want to be exposing it to an adolescent ADHD brain. So please, if you're thinking of cannabis as an option, please listen to episode 62. Okay, episode 63 is called Choose to be the Hero, Not the Victim in Your ADHD Life. I got so many comments on this episode. So we know that rumination, right, is when you dwell repetitively on negative thoughts. And there's science, we talked about it, behind the fact that when we ruminate, we deepen those grooves in our brain. It controls, you know, the grooves in our brain, which control that fight or flight response. And we also increase our levels of bad neurochemicals, such as cortisol, which is, again, that stress hormone. So what you say to yourself matters. And I suspect that if we sat down and went through all of your experiences, much of it is a story that you're telling yourself and you believe it, but it's not really true. And this is the whole reason that I started this podcast and the Facebook group. I knew that if women could learn about how their brain works and focus on their strengths rather than what's not working, then they could be very successful. So the key thought and I think it already might have been a key thought, but I cannot stress it enough, is this. The ADHD brain is demotivated by negative emotion and motivated by positive emotion. This means that you're going to feel better if you can learn how to focus more on that which is working rather than on that that isn't. Quite simply, what we focus on, it just gets bigger. I mean, how many more studies do we need to see that lots of money, perfect health, heaps of education, all of that stuff, that it really doesn't make people any happier? What makes people happier, what makes ADHD people happier is a shift in their mindset. Look, if you expect bad things to happen to you instead of adopting the attitude that, gee, bad things happen to everyone, I guess it was my time, you think that well, you're the only one and the world is literally gunning for you, that everyone hates you, that everyone's out to disappoint you, that everyone will disappoint you, that all people are evil. And this is not true. And I'm not sure if this is the episode where I introduce thought work, but everything starts with your thoughts, right? You start with your thoughts, your thoughts control your emotions, your emotions control your actions and what you do, and your actions and what you do determine what results you're going to get. So if you want different results, you have to first start by changing your thoughts about yourself, about your brain, about your ADHD. And as I've said, I've taken so much grief for this from some members, maybe they're former members now of our Facebook group, who they want to come in, they want to complain, they want to vent, and frankly, they're just vested in being the victim. And so we have this policy in our Facebook group that if you want to vent, that's okay, but at the end, you have to ask for a workaround so that our members can help you to get out of your rut, right? I don't want those grooves being dug deeper, right? So... If you don't ask for a workaround and if you just come on and complain, then we decline your posts because we know that that long-term venting and complaining is the gateway drug that leads to a lot of unnecessary happiness because what happens is that no matter what the situation is, you're going to look for the worst case scenario. And when you look for it, guess what? 
that's what you're going to find. That's what you're going to see. But you know what? It works the other way too. The more good stuff we focus on, the more good stuff we notice. If you're constantly noticing all the things that you can be grateful for, you realize just how good your life really is. And that is so good for our brains. So that leads me to episode number 75, Why ADHD Coaching Works. Look, when I started all this 99 episodes ago, just like therapy, I didn't really think coaching worked. I mean, I had worked with a general life coach who came highly recommended by another life coach. And I honestly, I found myself getting overwhelmed even figuring out what to talk about with her, you know? I didn't think she was that good, but I had already paid for a couple of months. And so I wanted to get my money's worth. And the sessions were expensive. They were only 20 minutes long. I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous. So of course, from that experience, I extrapolated that ADHD coaching would be a big waste of time as well. And I will say that if you're not working with someone who has ADHD and is specifically trained to work with ADHD clients, so an ADHD coach... I would still recommend that you save your money because there is a different way that ADHD coaches coach. So I've talked to so many women who, you know, they hired a general life coach and they're like, this is not working just like what I did. Right. And they don't know why. So what I want to do here real briefly is I want to tell you why ADHD coaching works for the ADHD brain. But before I do that, this is probably a really good place to talk about the difference between therapy and coaching. Look, a good therapist is so important for those with ADHD who have experienced trauma. And let me say that trauma for you may not be trauma for me and vice versa. You know, being constantly made to feel like a failure in school, that can absolutely be trauma. Therapy focuses on mental health and healing. Okay. While coaching focuses on understanding your brain and then setting and achieving goals that work with your brain. Because if you've got ADHD and you're in therapy, you can't be in therapy forever. I mean, at some point you have to move beyond what happened and why it happened. Because remember what we focus on just gets bigger. So once you are done with the therapy, ADHD coaching is then all about action. So what I always say to ADHD women, and again, this is a key thought, go do work on the trauma with a good therapist first, because no amount of ADHD coaching is going to help you until the underlying trauma is addressed. What ends up happening is the traumatized person feels even worse going through ADHD coaching because they can't move forward no matter how hard they try. And so then they blame themselves. They think there's something totally broken about me. There's something totally wrong about me. I'm stuck. And it's not true. First, you need to work on the trauma and then ADHD coaching will prove to be successful for you. And this exactly is why I won't take anyone into my AOK program if they haven't worked on their trauma first, because I just know I'm setting them up to fail, so I don't do it. So ADHD coaching, (laughs) lo and behold, to my dismay, 
actually works really well if you're working with a trained ADHD coach. It can be mind-blowingly effective. You know, I've worked with so many women that you wouldn't even recognize them six months after starting with ADHD coaching. And I'm not saying people that have worked with me. I'm just talking about ADHD women that have had success with an ADHD coach. Well, a good ADHD coach. It can't be anyone, right? So when you look at their life, their before and after life literally bears no resemblance to each other. You know, I've also worked with ADHD women that, like me, found no success with a coach. And again, it's because it was a coach for neurotypical-brained people and not an ADHD-brained person. So what is it that an ADHD coach does differently? Why can they be successful with an ADHD brain versus a regular coach can't be successful? Number one, they never tell you what to do. I mean, sometimes they might, but they'll ask permission first and then they'll say, you know, something along the lines of, would it be okay if I shared with you what has worked for me in the past or what has worked for my other clients in the past? So they don't tell you what to do. And the reason is because you can't tell someone with ADHD what to do because it usually doesn't work. We already know these things don't work, so we don't listen. Or if we do and we try, there's a good chance it won't work, and then we're more frustrated and likely to blame ourselves. We're lazy. We're unmotivated. We're stupid. You know, we're clueless. No, we're none of these things. Our brains just work differently, so our coaches need to work differently too. The client always needs to be part of the planning process. It's like planners and calendars and to-do lists. Just because they work for you regular brain people doesn't mean they work for us creative, nonlinear brain people. And the thing is, we don't know if it'll work. We never do. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And that is why we need to be part of the planning process because we have to try and see what works for us. And that's why we can also get very defiant. And people might say, oh, well, you know, they say this about teenagers a lot and kids, right? Oh, well, she never listens. That's her problem. Well, she doesn't listen because she knows you're wrong and she knows this doesn't work for her. ADHD coaches, a good one, they constantly want to know what you think, what you've tried before, what has worked for you, what hasn't. Okay, so what else can I tell you about ADHD coaching? And this is a key thought. If you're procrastinating or you're stuck, it's often because you don't know what to do. You haven't broken the steps down into small enough tasks. You don't know how to do this. So having someone help you process the tasks that make up a goal and teach you how to do this, it's life-changing. We finally know what to do first what to do second, what to do third. But more than that, a good ADHD coach, they help you build in a pause so you're not just left processing with a big pile of thoughts and then you're even more overwhelmed. No, they're going to stop you and they're going to help you to create the to-do list, to put that together so you know where to start. Because I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where I'm just processing all this information and then the person goes off and leaves me and I'm thinking, oh my God, I just went through all this stuff. And so I'm even more confused than I was when I started. I don't know how to, I don't even remember half the stuff I said, right? But how do I take all of that stuff I was processing and create a plan from it? And a good ADHD coach will show you how to do that. But this means 
that the coach has to really help the client dig in, right? In regular coaching, the coach might say, okay, what are you going to do? And the client says, I'm going to go get my social media plan or my homework. You know, I'm going to get it done by Friday. And they write it down and they go do it. For us, that's never going to be enough. Certainly not if we don't want to do it, right? It's just too big. Where do we even start? The ADHD coaching model requires that you go deeper. And I mean, honestly, I can only speak to the ADCA coaching model. I don't know what the other ADHD coaching models are, but the ADCA ADHD coaching model will require that the coach go deeper. So what do you mean by that? You need to really break it down and the coach needs to help lead this so that you can break it down. They're going to be asking you a lot of questions. Like I said before, what has worked in the past? What do you think would work? How can we start? What do you want to start with? You know, and really help you process the process. (laughs) A good ADHD coach is also always on the hunt for positive emotion. They help us to celebrate and remember our successes. We don't get anything done in negative emotion. Remember that key thought about how anything that's worth doing for us has to be done in positive emotion? Negative emotion, it kills our motivation. And part of our problem is we forget what has brought the positive emotion in the past, right? So we need someone on our team that's constantly reminding us about all the things that we can be proud of. Left to our own devices, we're just going to slough it off. We're not even going to realize that it happened because we're so busy discounting it so we can just move on to the next thing. Kind of like my initial refusal to do anything other than a normal podcast episode for my 100th podcast. Having a cheerleader to help us pause, take it all in, and celebrate is so important for our brains. And I feel like I'm missing something else when I'm talking about the benefits of ADHD coaching, but that's a good start. Let's just go with that. And if you're interested in ADHD coaching, do go check out episode 75 because I do go into ADHD coaching there in detail, especially since I was not a believer initially. Okay, let me tell you one more thing. So when I started at episode one, my thought was, I'm spontaneous, I'm creative, I'm imaginative, I need less structure because the structure is what's going to bog me down, right? And I don't really like structure. I like to just kind of, you know, do things when I feel like doing them. And I thought kids like my ADHD son needed less structure too. I mentioned that when I was talking about the kids last week. Well, it turns out that I was totally wrong. So key thought here, we actually need more structure. So we need to stop resisting structure, which I think is actually what ADHD coaching provides a lot of structure, right? So what I realized is the minute I started implementing and following the structures that I put into my life, my anxiety eased and my focus and ability to get things done literally skyrocketed. And I was so much happier. I felt smarter. I felt more organized. I felt more focused. I felt more efficient. And guess what? I also felt more creative. So it wasn't the opposite that happened. I think a lot of us think that, well, the more structure we put into our life, the less room we're going to have for creativity. And it's actually the opposite. The more structure I put into my life, my brain feels so much freer and there's much less anxiety. And so I am much more creative. So I think the question is, what can you do in your life to create more structure, to build more systems, and to simplify? 
because those are the things that an ADHD coach can work with you on. And even if you don't use an ADHD coach, these are questions you can ask of yourself to start building structure into your life. Okay, so now episode 78, what does ADHD look like in women? And this was the update. So I created episode 78 because I think episode two was all about what does ADHD look like in women as well. And so I felt like I had gone at least a year and a half and I had learned a lot and women seemed to really like that episode. It gave them a lot of information. And so in episode 78, I updated it. So let's start with this. Just because you were not diagnosed as a child doesn't mean you don't have ADHD. Having less of a problem today with these symptoms than you had as a child doesn't mean you don't have ADHD. Just because you were hyperactive as a child, but you're no longer hyperactive today, doesn't mean you don't have ADHD. Yet, our members are told these things by their doctors all the time. And I see it in our Facebook group all the time. So I just want to talk briefly about women and what I learned about women and ADHD over these 99 episodes. Studies show that women suffer from ADHD more than men, especially those women with inattentive ADHD and its symptoms. This is the presentation that most girls have. It's more an inattentive, daydreamy kind of quality for women too, where the restlessness goes internal. And this is the presentation that also typically leads to anxiety. And because inattentive ADHD looks so different than the typical nine-year-old hyperactive boy who's climbing the walls, this is the presentation that is often missed. So girls tend to internalize their symptoms while boys externalize them. Girls go inward, meaning their anger, their frustration, their struggle, it's kept inside of them. They beat themselves up more, which translates into higher rates of anxiety and depression for girls with ADHD. So inattentive girls are more hyperactive in their minds, and that takes the form of ruminating and, you know, this thinking, thinking, thinking. It can turn into RSD. A lot of this has to do with socialization and conforming to gender role expectations. I mean, if you think about it, girls are supposed to do better in school. They're supposed to pay better attention. They're supposed to have perfect handwriting. They're supposed to be more organized. They're supposed to be just plain more on top of things than boys. So often, girls work so hard to present this way to the outside world, and they don't tell anybody what's really going on with them inside. Versus boys, they're actually allowed to act out more, right? They can be more disruptive. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's a boy, right? There's also so much bias and stigma against girls with ADHD. All kinds of studies have shown that when a boy and a girl present with the exact same ADHD symptoms, the boy is going to be referred for treatment and the girl won't be. It's also no surprise that 95% of the research on ADHD, I think it's more than 95%, was done on white hyperactive school-aged boys. The prognosis is also so much better the earlier the diagnosis. And this is why it's so important that we make sure and advocate for our girls because the schools and even their doctors often don't know what ADHD even looks like in girls. The earlier that we can normalize their differences, that they can meet other friends who also have it, that they can learn and understand how their brain works, the better. So key thought, ADHD girls and ADHD women need to understand what 
their strengths are. For every negative symptom, there is a corresponding positive one. You can be distractible or you can be creative. You can be hyperactive or you can be energetic. You can be emotional or you can be intuitive, kind, and good with people. You can be impulsive or you can be fearless. When we know what our strengths are and we can marry that to something that we're interested in, it allows us to be wildly successful. And you have heard me say one key phrase more than any key phrases, and that is that every ADHD woman I have ever met is brilliant at something. When women are diagnosed with ADHD late in life, especially if they don't know others who have ADHD, there's so much shame around it. They see their behavior as a character flaw or a moral failing when really their brains just work differently. When you're finally diagnosed and you realize that you're not alone, you're not broken or defective, you just have a different brain, there is so much freedom in that. Beyond that, when you get off this hamster wheel of trying to repair your weaknesses and instead focus on your strengths, you're moving in the right direction. There is a reason you're not good at keeping a perfect house, getting the wash done, making dinner, coordinating all the administrative details of your child's education, balancing the checkbook, right? It's boring and your brilliant brain needs something so much more challenging than that. So go do that instead of trying to stay afloat, doing what isn't inspiring or even fun for you to do. And who the hell ever created this ridiculous rule that women are somehow supposed to be better at this stuff? Because you know what? They're not. And women who are forced to take on these tasks despite the fact that they hold no interest for them and they're not very good at them become very unhappy women. So that leads me to episode 87. ADHD means that you're never too old. And this is the last episode that I'm going to talk about. So one of the sentiments that I kept hearing from my ADHD women was, I'm too old. It's too late. And this was from women in their 50s, as well as women in their 20s and 30s. So in this episode, what I did is I shared my story and the fact that this podcast and my ADHD coaching business and program truly came about in my second act, once my kids started wrapping up high school and started moving off to college. You know, I talked about the fact that we're living in an unprecedented time, our time, a time where there are 75-year-old models that have more social cred than the 23-year-old ones, a time where there are fitness influencers in their 70s. Now, if you were a neurotypical at 70, I'd be kind of like, uh, good luck. I wish you well. But if you have ADHD at 70, I'm like, you know what? She's committed. She's going to do it. This is the kind of crazy stuff that we do, right? One day we just take the bull by the horns and take him down. We don't give up. We have fire and brimstone and tenacity. All we need is interest and a challenge. And since there's a 60% chance that if you have ADHD, you're also an entrepreneur, let's talk about age and starting a business. 60% of people who start businesses are between the ages of 40 and 60. The average startup founder is 45 years old. A 50-year-old entrepreneur is 2.8 times more likely to found a successful company than a 25-year-old. And that's true for successful side hustles as well. A 60-year-old startup founder is three times as likely to found a successful startup as a 30-year-old startup founder and is 1.7 times 
as likely to found a startup that winds up in the 0.1% of all companies. More often than not, I'll see someone asking to be admitted into our group, and they're like 22 years old, and they state that they had a later in life diagnosis, and it just makes me laugh in a loving, kind, I want to embrace you kind of way, right? To me, a late in life diagnosis is 45 or older. Maybe I should even extend that to 55 or older. If anything, in your 20s or 30s, you're not too old. It's that you're too young. What you're doing is basically blaming your ADHD for what you have going on when in fact, it's not your ADHD, it's your age. You just need more time to learn, to grow, to season, to work. And you need the kind of work that entails acting and doing and moving what you love, what you're interested in forward. Yeah, we're ADHD. This means that we have the ideas. So now go get the experience in all facets of life. Learn the strategy, discover how to implement, learn how to work with people. The real key here is to find something in your zone of interest. Have I said this enough times? And be around people who respect and appreciate you exactly the way you are. Okay. So those are huge key thoughts. Interest is important, but environment is just as important. So be doing something in an area of interest, but be doing it with and around people who love and respect you exactly the way you are. If you're 45 or older, science proves that your experience, your skills, your connections, your expertise, and yes, your age, that's all on your side. So get out there and start doing one little piece every single day. And I promise you that in one year, you won't even recognize the life that you're living. I want to say one more thing about age. You know, we want to know how old people are because age functions as a way to think about and compartmentalize accomplishments. Like we use it to measure expectations, but it's really not relevant because there are people who accomplish a hell of a lot at a very young age, key thought. But then there are people like us with ADHD who tend to bloom later. So personally, I think age is a bunch of BS. And my goal is to break assumptions about what women are capable of at any given stage in life, at any age, right? It's just one more way to label and divide us. It's ageist. And especially for women, think about this. If the child rearing falls primarily on us, it makes sense that accomplishments related to us personally and not our family, that they're going to happen much later in life. We finally have time to really focus on what we want. We've had time to discover what's important to us. I frankly refuse to ride into the sunset of retirement like I'm supposed to. I plan on fighting like hell to make a difference, to live to my potential with this one life that I have. And I want to be an inspiration to my kids so that when they're older, they don't give a second thought about living to their full potential in that second half of life. To me, this frankly feels like a feminist, if not political act. And doesn't this sound like something an ADHD brain would completely embrace anyway? Everyone else is starting to talk about retirement. You know, you get into your mid 40s and that's what people talk about. And I just find it so boring. I want to talk about what's possible. We have energy. We now have time. We certainly have ideas. And you know we've got interests. So why the hell not? So there you go. 
Those really were the key thoughts in the 99 episodes that I created. And I'm sure I'm going to go to bed. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to remember these things and think, oh my gosh, that wasn't in episode 100 or episode 101. You know, when I first started with my podcast, I was thrilled when one person sent me a message, literally one person a week, and I would be just so thrilled. I would print it out and I would stick it on my bulletin board because I wanted to make sure that I could see it from every angle. (laughs) So I want you to know this. I want you to know that I still read all of your messages. They literally make my day, and my intention is always to respond to them. But often life takes over. You know, I will star the message and then it gets lost in the shuffle. I start to write a heartfelt response. I get distracted. The message ends up in my drafts. And I think I've sent it only to discover it months later, still in my drafts. Sometimes, especially lately, I am so overwhelmed by my coaching practice and granting access to the hundreds of women who have requested to be admitted into our Facebook group. And now my planning system, A-OK Every Day, that things are just getting more and more lost. And this is what keeps me up at night. The thought that you spend your time sending me a heartfelt message. I somehow don't respond and you think I don't care. Please know that your messages mean the world to me. I read every single last one of them. The problem is I often feel like the hare in Alice in Wonderland, you know, the one that runs around saying, I'm late, I'm late. There are more pressures on my time, especially lately, and sometimes for my own sanity, I just have to let things go. But please know that I am doing my very, very best, and I do read every single one of your messages. One more thing I want to share before I go, you know... I especially love the messages that I get from someone who says they found my podcast or my Facebook group or my AOK coaching program because it was recommended to them by their psychiatrist, their psychologist, or their therapist. And these messages, they come from all over the world. And every time I see one, I think, young lady, you've got some nerve. But then I laugh because, you know, who was I to do this? Who am I that you're even listening to me? But I have to tell you, I will be the first to admit that I've always struggled with that imposter complex, right? Never feeling like I know quite enough, always having to prove I'm actually smart. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I have now recorded 101 episodes of ADHD for Smartass Women. I have learned so much, but in true ADHD fashion, my working memory, it's just not great. And this means that I have forgotten so much of what I've learned, which is why it was so nice to go through all of my episodes, even though it literally took days. What a reminder of what I've accomplished and what I've learned. Of course, when I look back at my notes, I remember what I learned, but without my notes, I can feel pretty lost. And this means that What's happened is I've developed this intuitive sense of what I know about ADHD. You know, I've integrated all this knowledge, but if you ask me why I feel a certain way, I sometimes struggle to cite for you the specific facts that support my beliefs, especially if I can't refer to my notes, right? And I silently and not so silently now (laughs) that I'm sharing it with you, fear that one day someone is going to ask me something really basic about ADHD. And of course, in my imagination, that will be at some large public event and I'm not going to remember. So I'm going to fall all over myself trying to respond to their question and respond really poorly. In truth, it's why AOK only recently included live office hours. I wasn't sure I could do it. You know, I wasn't sure that 
the anxiety I would feel about not giving the right answer would not even allow my, my thoughts to be lucid. Does that even make sense? But this last time I did it, I had live office hours and I discovered that I can rely on my brain and I'm actually quite good at helping students when they get stuck. I realized I'm a very good coach, but because I'm not good at remembering numbers, I don't remember statistics, that imposter complex, it's still there. And I don't know that it'll ever go away. And maybe that's not a bad thing to always work a bit harder than anyone else, to know that at any time I can literally sound, well, less than knowledgeable, right? Maybe it keeps me more on my toes. Maybe I take less things for granted than someone else who doesn't have this brain would. The difference, though, now is I readily admit that that's how my brain sometimes works. And that alone is unbelievably freeing. I am not perfect. I never have been, and I no longer feel the need to pretend that I am. My motto used to be good enough isn't. Now it's get it done. It's all about action. Slap it together, tape it up, get it to the finish line. In the words of one of our brilliant Facebook group members, Stein Larson, be a last 5% finisher. Because once I'm 100% done, I no longer have to drag that worry around with me that clutters up my brain, right? That thing that I only got 95% done. And I no longer walk by things that are only 95% done and then feel bad about the fact that I didn't take it through to the last 5%. It's done. It's dusted. It's gone. So I just wanted to share that because I promise you that you truly are no different than I am. So find something that you're really interested in and keep moving it forward a little bit every day. Step into the fear and just act. I mean, do you honestly think that when I first started this podcast, I actually believed that my ADHD brain could show up every single week for 100 weeks in a row? No, 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 no. If I had thought out that far, and, and in truth, I did, and that's what freaked me out, and so I'd have to pull it all back because... I would have literally not started if I went there more, right? All I could do was focus on the next week, one little itty bitty week at a time. And I know that if I can focus on one little itty bitty week at a time and move something that I really care about forward, I know that you can too. It has been the pleasure of my life to get to know you, to get to know your brain, to get to know our brains, to be inspired by you, to serve you. And I so look forward to the next 100 episodes. So that is what I have for you today. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this podcast, please let me know by leaving a review. You know, our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. I actually just had a young student athlete who reached out to me, oh, I don't know, probably an hour ago and said, I think I should be on your podcast and these are the reasons I should be and this is what I can teach your listeners. And I'm like, you know what? You sound good. 
I'll reach out to you with my calendar. So yeah, if you're thinking, you know what, there's something really special about me and look at all these things I've overcome. And these are the workarounds that I've developed. I want you on this podcast. That's what I have for you today. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this podcast, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. Don't forget my 100th episode gift to you, which is our podcast index. In our podcast index, you can find our episodes in categories. So for example, if you're looking for workarounds or information on ADHD and emotion, you can look in that specific category. The link is tracyoutsuka.com forward slash podcast index. Please check out AOK Every Day our Unplanner System for Planning Success, and you can find more information about that at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash unplanner. But please don't dilly-dally. When the 100 planners are gone, they're gone for good until our next printing. So there's absolutely nothing that I'll be able to do if you miss it. Okay, enjoy your holiday season, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.